This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I've actually been doing therapy here for over 25 years. I began self-work three years ago in order to try to reach people who might already be interested in psychological or emotional kinds of healing, but also to those who might have been initially diagnosed and are looking for answers, really having never talked to anybody about this kind of thing, and to a third group, those of you who might be a bit critical or even reticent to consider therapy or any kind of therapeutic practice, but you are curious enough to listen to a podcast like this. There's also so much miseducation and misunderstanding about what happens in treatment. Maybe this will give you an example of what therapy just might be like for you. For those of you who've been listening to self-work for a while, you know that I like to talk about what you can do about it. I'm a very action-oriented therapist. And you also know that actually one week from the date of this episode airing, Perfectly Hidden Depression, my book on perfectionism and depression, will officially come out. That would be November the 1st. I can't quite believe it. But as I began preparing for this podcast, I recognized that I wanted to talk about some of the things, not only that I learned in writing the book, but to give you some specific examples of exercises that I hope will make the book more like experiencing than simple reading. I wanted whoever read Perfectly Hidden Depression to come away not only with information, but with guidance on affecting real change in their lives and support for taking those risks, and I might even help them define those risks. So today I want to give you a taste of those exercises that are actually the first six of the 62 that are in the book. Maybe you can get through these exercises a sense of how this kind of change, healing change, can be tried on. So many people want change, but start off with a way that's too difficult or too hard to reach. Hopefully these exercises are things you can do to set yourself up for success, however it is that you like to define that success. And I'll explain why each one is important as well. A third point to make is, yes, this book's subject matter is perfectionism, but the therapeutic process of the book is one I use with varying kinds of struggles. So I wanted the book to do the same thing I'm hoping to do with the podcast, is to offer you real ways to affect change. Our listener email, which is a regular feature of self-work, is from someone who's identified with perfectly hidden depression, but her specific problem lies with jealousy or difficulty with self-worth after the end of a relationship. She's maintaining a friendship with that ex, and it'll be interesting to see what you think about how she talks about the relationship and whether you hear the same thing I do about it. So sit back and relax. I'm going to give you six specific exercises to try to work with your own healing, whether it's from depression or anxiety or perfectionism. One of the interesting things and certainly growth opportunities for me in writing this book 
was having to put into words what I do as a therapist. Before New Harbinger, in fact, decided to publish, they told me, this book is good and you're describing something that's important, but you have to offer a path to healing. Well, I don't know if you've ever been to a conference where you walk in and the you sit down and you kind of get your seat where you're going to be comfortable and you put your pens and pencils around you or your laptop or whatever. And then the speaker starts and you sit back and you think, all right, I'm going to learn a lot from this. And she or he says, now I'm going to want y'all to participate. (laughs) And your stomach kind of sinks and you think, oh my gosh, am I going to have to speak or am I going to have to talk about myself or yuck. (laughs) Well, when I heard that, I thought yuck because I'd never been the kind of therapist who actually followed one psychological theory but I instead drew from different schools of thought and action, and I thought, oh my gosh, if I put together a structure of what I do in healing, it's going to just be a mishmash. But I was going to have to participate. (laughs) In fact, I was going to have to do more than participate, but actually lead that discussion. It was an interesting way for me to realize what the book was going to be, and actually what the book became. I had two weeks to come up with this healing strategy, and then New Harbinger was going to make their decision whether or not the book was a go for them. So it was just a little bit of pressure out of that. In the next two weeks, I came up with what I call the five stages of healing. And actually, the process was not as hard as I thought it might be, because I confirmed what I already knew, that as I'd watched different people take on the challenge of change, I'd been learning along with them. And so the five C's, or really stages, of healing was born. The steps are consciousness, commitment, confrontation, connection, and change. You know, when you change in therapy, you don't travel in one direction. You don't go from one neatly designed task to another. The flow between healing is circular. And what I mean by this is, if you're in the consciousness stage, that might help you confront something. If you confront something, that will help you connect with an emotion. The healing that goes on as you do that emotional work makes you want to commit more. And as you commit more, change becomes more and more possible. So all of the energy flow is multidirectional. Again, the stages are consciousness, commitment, confrontation, connection, and change. Connection means emotional connection. Confrontation is about confronting rules that you've followed that you no longer want to. So each breakthrough, each stage supports the next. In therapy, you have to deal with a lot of ambiguity because you're not real sure what's going to happen as you go through one aha moment or deepening of an emotion. How will that make you feel tomorrow? It's a wonderful process to go through and to watch. And each step is uniquely important in creating more emotional and practical freedom with the overall goal of increased self-acceptance and self-compassion. So when we consider talking about these steps today, I want you to also realize this. What's important in any change process is that you go at your own pace. So sometimes change can become jarring or painful and you actually need to take a break from it. I often have people in therapy, for example, who say, okay, you know, I've been coming for three or four months. I want to go try to work these ideas, these connections, these realizations out in real life. And then can I come back? Sure. That's a great way to use therapy. 
you have to realize that sometimes in therapy, you're trying to alter a pattern that has protected or even shielded you for years. And it takes bravery and time to look at things differently and to risk new behaviors. So again, I'm going to offer in the next few minutes, six exercises for you to try on for size. Some of them are more reflective and some of them are more action oriented. Here's reflection one. I call it creating a mantra to confront shame and perfectionism. A lot of times it's important to start out writing, trying to find kind of a quiet, calm place. So take a few breaths and ask yourself this question. What do I need to remind myself of every day about my healing work? So you play with creating what's called a mantra, a mental reminder of a positive goal or experience you want to have. Your mantra could be, whatever time this takes is time well spent, or I'm going to relish discovering what I write. I recently had a patient tell me as she started reading the book, I will find my courage. So what positive affirmations could you say to yourself? If nothing comes to you, search online for positive affirmations. And your mantra could be, it will take time to be more positive with myself. And that's okay. If you start there, I hope you hear what I'm saying. Because that struggle is where you are. So just accept that and keep your mind open. Again, that mantra might be, it will take more time for me to be positive with myself. I like to tell people to put their mantra on post-it notes or index cards or anything and tape them to their mirror in their car to help remind them what they're working on. And of course, your mantra can change, but you always want to keep where you're going in mind. After establishing that mantra, we're going to go on to reflection two, and we're going to identify your shame and give it a name. Now, this one may already be familiar to some of you who've listened to an episode on shame or anxiety. But of course, I've included it in the book. So here it comes. Find a quiet place to sit with your journal and take a few deep breaths again. You might even close your eyes for a moment and focus on your body from head to toe, noticing where there might be tension or discomfort. This is a good thing to do before any of these reflections. Now I want you to allow yourself to think about the family and culture in which you grew up. And take a few moments to consider what you learned was shameful. What were you never supposed to do or feel? What was never allowed or supported? As you let these thoughts come to you, open your eyes and write down those inflexible, critical whispers. For example, you might hear, it's selfish for you to put your needs first. Or, you're never supposed to question what you're told to do. You do it because I told you to do it. How many times have I heard that? (laughs) How are you criticizing yourself? It's weak of you to ask for help. Or, you should be able to do this by yourself. If you ask for help, you're calling attention to yourself. So what are your own critical whispers? And then it's kind of fun to give those whispers a name, almost like you were seeing them as a gremlin that is sitting on your shoulder. I call mine Bob, and so when I start hearing that shame in my head, this podcast isn't good enough. You're not making sense. I say, thanks, Bob. Thanks for the editorial comments, but I will continue. If you add a little humor to your shame, again, you can hear it as not you. 
Your shame is not you. Your anxiety is not you. But it's something that you're experiencing. Now, in the book, this next reflection, reflection number three, is found in the section where I'm talking about emotional avoidance. People with perfectly hidden depression don't know how to express pain. They can describe it, but they have a hard time actually feeling it. But this reflection is wonderful for anyone to do, and I'll tell you why in a second. So here's the reflection. Grab a journal and take a few moments for a brief list-writing exercise. As you've started other reflections, breathe some breaths, and then write down emotions in order that you find most difficult to feel. What are the emotions that you find most difficult to feel? So after that, take a moment to look at that list and see what feelings, if any, emerge as you look at your list. Does it give you anxiety? Does it make you sad? to think you can't feel sadness? Or do you connect a little bit with some sadness? Is it hard for you to feel fear or admit fear? Is it hard for you to feel joy? So I want you to write them down. Now, one of the reasons this is important for the people who are reading the book is that a lot of times what you want to do when you're working in therapy is to go back to this list Say, now I can feel joy, or now, gosh, I wrote down that I couldn't grieve, and I have cried. For the first time in my life, I've allowed myself to cry. It can give you a sense of where you came from and where you're going in therapy and in healing. So again, that's for the book, but I think that's a wonderful thing to do all the time, to know what's difficult for you, to know what direction you're moving and where you want to go. Again, go back to your mantra If one of the things on this list is, I can't feel joy, maybe one of your mantras would become, I'm going to find my joy. The fourth reflection comes from a section of the book that's about worry and a need for control. This is an interesting reflection, one that I use a lot in therapy in general, so I want to stress that as well. Here's reflection four. Once again, in your calm place and with your journal, please write out the words, I believe that worry, and then blank. I believe that worry, and then put a blank, and you're going to fill in that blank. I believe that worry protects me. I believe that worry keeps bad things from happening to my children. I believe that worry means I care. Whatever the statement that may seem rational or irrational, write down the function that you believe worry serves. I believe that worrying is part of being responsible. My dad always worried. See how many statements you can make about worry. And in the next few minutes, you might want to try that and pause the podcast and see what you can do. You can do this with anything, really. That's why I wanted to present this reflection. You could write down, I believe that love, and then fill in the blank. Or, I believe that hate, fill in the blank. A lot of the times, we believe things about certain emotions certain emotional states, and we tell ourselves these are true, and sometimes we need to confront them. And if you write them down and help yourself begin to see, is this rational or is it not rational? Interestingly, you can also, with this reflection, think about the meaning of certain decisions. I believe that divorcing, fill in the blank. I believe that staying married, fill in the blank. I believe that this job, 
fill in the blank. You see, you are writing down what you believe about something, and that can help you get clarity. The fifth reflection is found in the section of the book where we're talking about changing being a giver, always being a giver, to accepting things from people. Sometimes when I'm working with someone who says, oh, you know, I don't ask my friends for much because they're all so busy or something like that. And I'll say to them, so you're not giving them a gift. And they look at me and say, what are you talking about? I say, it's a gift to give someone the opportunity to help you because they're flattered. When you ask for help, when you ask for guidance, when you say to someone, wow, you really do that well, could you show me how to do that? They feel important. They feel needed. And so often for those of you who struggle to ask for help at all or struggle with receiving anything from others, think about that you'd be giving them the gift of feeling good about themselves, of feeling competent by asking for help or by accepting what they have to give. So here's Reflection 5. It was called Saying Thank You. As you begin your day-to-day, try this assignment. If anyone says anything complimentary to you today, all you're going to say is, thank you, and not another word. Watch carefully and see what happens. You're not sidestepping it. You're not discounting it. You're just saying, well, thank you. Again, you're soaking up positive statements, positive feedback about yourself. This actually may be a little harder than it sounds, but it can feel like an important step. So you have a mantra now. You know where you're going. You've identified your anxiety or shame that is something you need to confront. You've dived into your emotional range and you've asked yourself, what emotions are hard for me to feel? You've looked at your own anxiety and the beliefs you tell yourself about it or perhaps other feeling states. You've walked around your world absorbing what positive it has to offer you and simply saying thank you. So what's next? Reflection six is about friends and family. And does anyone really know the real you? Here it is. I want you to go to your calm space within your journal. Again, remember, this is important in every exercise to try to center yourself. You're going to draw a set of nested circles. The first one fairly small, the second a little larger, the third largest of all, almost like large plates that are on the bottom and medium-sized plates in the middle and the smaller ones at the top. So you'll have circles that are like that. And think of those circles as representing significant people in your life, and you're in the middle. Your inner circle, people who are closest to you, are found in the smallest circle. Make little dots and write their names by the dots that represent them. Be brutally honest. Your shaming critical voice may be saying, you have to put your friend Alice in the inner circle. She'd be hurt if you didn't. But if Alice doesn't belong in the inner circle, then don't put her there. That's what I'm talking about with brutal honesty. The next circle would then represent a lesser sense of connection and the outer even less. Yet be sure that you list the individuals who have some importance to you. You might have to draw a fourth or fifth circle. But what individuals belong where? Now, after you've done this exercise, I want you to journal about how it felt to do it. Did it make you feel more connected? Did it actually make you feel more lonely? 
perhaps to realize that you haven't let too many people into who you are. So if you're struggling with loneliness, of course, there's a reason that you are. I hope that through these beginning initial exercises, you're able to see that often in therapy, we are not telling people what to do or where to go with their lives. We're simply giving them ideas and support on how to do that. Now, obviously, if someone is going in a direction that is entirely self-destructive, then that needs to be discussed as well. But so much of therapy is about just guidance and support and specific techniques in order to do that. So now you have six of them. I'll be presenting more of these exercises as we go along, but maybe those will help you in your life begin the process of your own healing. Our listener email today is for someone who does identify with perfectly hidden depression. She says, I'm excited to now name these behaviors as perfectly hidden depression and address them intentionally in order to move forward with my life. Then she says, I had an ex-boyfriend about a year ago who I felt very safe with. We've been close friends for years prior to dating. Unfortunately, he often recoiled at my physical touch, constantly made comments that made me feel insecure, and eventually admitted that he didn't love me and never did. I had finally found the courage to expose my true self only to be rejected. This experience reinforced my inner fears of unworthiness and sent me into a deep depression. I have since found a way out of that depression and have been able to maintain a friendship with that ex. He's now dating again, but it's affecting me far more than I expected it to. I worry that if I meet a new partner of his, that partner will embody all of my failures. If I saw him do something as simple as reach for her hand, I'd be reminded that he was capable of expressing this love and affection. He just wasn't able to do that with me because I wasn't worthy. As I read this, what do you begin to notice? I want to make clear that I no longer have any romantic feelings for this ex. I realize that we were in an unhealthy relationship marked largely by extreme insecurity and anxiety. I have since found a wonderfully supportive partner who I've been successful with, able to be vulnerable, and feel safe with. My ex has been an important person in my life, but we had a very unhealthy romantic relationship. I'd say he'd been a positive influence in my life overall, but I worry that the only way I will stop feeling the way I do now is to cut him out of my life entirely. Could an alternative be to work on identifying those insecurities that are triggered by his new partners in an attempt at self-acceptance? What I noticed in her letter was how much she had absorbed responsibility for the failure of that relationship or the non-romantic nature of that relationship, and that concerned me. Maybe you noticed it too. So I answer her, I'm so delighted that my work on perfectly hidden depression has been helpful to you. One sentence you said really got my attention. This is the sentence. I'd be reminded that he was capable of expressing this love and affection. He just wasn't able to do that with me because I wasn't worthy. If that's what your ex said to you, that you weren't worthy of his affection, then that's a real sign of trouble in him, not in you. So my question is, did you say this to yourself or did he actually say it to you? Really, no matter which one it is, if you believe that his lack of a romantic feeling about you was about your worth, then that emotional wound needs healing. 
and not necessarily by a new relationship, although that's great that you have one. My guess is it's triggering something old in you. Have you felt before that you weren't valuable enough to love and receive affection? If so, who caused you to feel this way? Can you go back and acknowledge that that's where that got started and that's what made you more susceptible to absorbing that sense of blame? I want to make sure you understand that all the responsibility for that relationship failing is not yours. And maybe that's where the true work is. Thank you for joining me today on self-work, and I hope that as you wrote down those reflections and began to do them, you can either have some insight and say, oh, I didn't realize that's what I believed, or yes, I really want to use this mantra to positively affirm myself, or that you begin to crack your life open a little bit for some analysis and for some clarity. There are many ways of reaching out to me. My email is asksdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com, and you can subscribe there, and you'll receive both this podcast and a weekly blog post. It's a great way to just be able to keep up easily with what's going on. You can leave me a speak pipe voicemail message. Some of you have tried, but you only last a couple of seconds, so you have a full minute and a half to leave me a question or a comment. Thank you so much for the ratings and reviews that some of you have left. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for that. So thanks again for listening. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.